morning, everybody. We're about to kick off a brand new message series entitled Paranormal Activity, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pace myself over the next four weeks as I've got a lot to say in regards to the Holy Spirit. But as we begin, let me start with just theology and just say, if you are a Christian, if you belong to our faith, we are what we call Trinitarian, which I know is a big fancy word, but what it boils down to is we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, typically when we think about God the Father, we kind of have things that come to our mind. We kind of know God the Father. We've read a lot in the Old Testament and throughout the Scriptures. He could be, at times it seems, just the temperamental, maybe bad mood side of the Trinity in our mind. And then you get to the Gospels, and you see Jesus, and He's the happy face of the Trinity, right? Kissing baby, hugging old ladies, like that's what we kind of, good positive things come to our mind when we think about Jesus. And then when you get to the Holy Spirit, we immediately descend into this foggy mist of uncertainty and lack of clarity as we're not sure what to think about the Holy Spirit. And so for most of us, we have very like little in terms of the thought that comes to mind, or maybe for some of you, you're thinking of like your crazy Pentecostal aunt who was weird in some particular way, and is that what you mean by the Holy Spirit? So we want to talk for the next four weeks about what do we mean when we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Spirit in regards to our life. But in order to understand that, as I was thinking through, how do I just practically break down in the most practical terms why it is that we're even studying about the Holy Spirit or why this is so important, what I discovered is the answer really does, it lays in a fundamental question, and that is this. What does God want for us as Christians? Or what's the point of following Jesus? What's the point of being a Christian? So just for a moment, imagine that one of your friends came up to you. They're not a Christian, but they're interested in it. They're considering it. And so they come to you and they ask you, well, what's the point of Christianity? Or why is it that I should follow after Jesus? Like what happens? What's the point of it? How would you answer that? Like what would come, what would your response be to him or her if they're asking the question, what's the point of Christianity? Now, what I find often is there's two very popular responses that I hear more often than not. Number one, the point of being a Christian or following after Jesus, number one is to help me be a good person or a better person. To which I would respond, wrong answer. Now, I'm not saying that your character won't be affected, but I don't think God is looking down from heaven pleased that on the earth there now is populated a whole bunch of people who are nice. Like, like you ever watch The Simpsons and Ned Flanders? Like, I don't think the end goal of Christianity is for us to become Ned Flanders. Now, by the way, I think this is why men don't go to church, because more often than not, they perceive that the point of it is to somehow make them nicer. And I'm telling you, no man wakes up and thinks, I wish there was an organization or an institution that could help me be nice. I think I'll go to church today. Like, no, but no man wakes up and thinks that, and if they even indirectly suspect from their wife that, man, I hope that they kind of get involved in church and become a Christian so that I'll stop drinking or smoking or cussing or cheating when we play Monopoly, I'll tell you, that's not, that's not the point of Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that your character doesn't matter to Jesus, but the point of Christianity is not to make you a better person or a good person, or even more moral. Secondly, and probably most commonly, the response that I hear is, is that when you die, you can go to heaven. Like the point of Christianity or why you should give your life to Jesus or follow after Jesus is so that Jesus can forgive you of all of your sins so that when you die, you can go to heaven. To which again, I would answer, wrong. 
Now, did Jesus redeem you from your sins and give you eternal life that begins now and lasts forever? Yes. But that's not the end goal, and that's not the point of Christianity. That's not what it's all about. Yet, when you think about most presentations of the good news or the gospel, the rationale for becoming a Christian is precisely this, to either become a good person or to have your sins forgiven so that you could go to heaven. But if you go back and actually read everything that Jesus says, you'll have a hard time squaring those two things with almost anything that he said because he so rarely talked about it. And I think this is also why we lose all of our kids. Like people wonder, you know, my kids that get out of the house, they graduate from high school, and then they left the faith or they left church or they kind of ditched Christianity, at least for a period of time. And my response is probably because there was no adventure in it. At least how it was commonly portrayed by way of just becoming a nice person or a moral person or something like that. There's, there's no risk in that. What 19-year-old kid has their heart beating faster with excitement and passion about the prospect of someday dying and going to heaven. Like, 19-year-old kids don't think it. It's just a bug. It's going to be all right. Like, it's gonna, I see your ADD. is like, there's a bug in the room. No 19-year-old kids even think about life after death, let alone, that's why I should give my life to that? Now you can't stop watching it. He pointed it out, and I was like, oh, there is a bug right there. And see, this is why I think our kids choose much greater adventures in their mind. Like, like what about people who enlist in the military, like sign for, like go into the military, like you could die doing that. Like, yeah, it's worth it to them to potentially give that sacrifice or to offer that for this much bigger cause, this much bigger purpose. Or I see people choose certain occupations that have great risk, and why would you do it? Like, because there's a much bigger purpose in mind. Or I've seen kids graduate from college and enter into like volunteer work all around the globe that does amazing things and sacrificial things, and they're giving their lives to that but they're not going to give it to becoming a nicer person or dying and going to heaven. Yet when you look at the point of Jesus and the purpose, when he calls disciples to follow him, it's not for becoming nicer or so that they can all go to heaven, but rather he spends three years with them, training them and equipping them, guiding them along a path of transformation and preparation to advance the kingdom of God. And the central message of Jesus is just this, the kingdom of God. The point is not to be a nice person or to make it to heaven someday. It is that here and now we are advancing the kingdom of God. And this becomes Jesus' central message. He almost never talks about being a nice person. He almost never talks about having our sins forgiven so we could die and go to heaven. What he talks about on almost every page of the Gospels is that God has a dream for the earth here and now. That he has a particular way that he wants things to be done. That he has a reign and a rule that what God wants to happen ought to happen. And he calls it the kingdom of God. And it's broken into the earth here and now. And Jesus calls disciples to himself and says, you're going to be advancing that kingdom by being a messenger of the kingdom. Or an ambassador of the kingdom. Or a soldier of that kingdom. And in it you can expect adventure. And you can expect risk. In fact, Some of you will pay with your very lives for this adventure of the kingdom. And you're going to go and you're going to confront all other kingdoms of this world, including making a direct attack on Satan, reclaiming for God what was his from the very beginning. And it will be costly. And it will be paid by you through sacrificial service and love. And he sends them out to preach and to teach and to heal and to actually demonstrate the dream of God here on earth, right here right now. You will do the things that I have done and continue my mission. The revolution that I started at my death and burial and resurrection continues in you. 
and you're going to reclaim the earth for God. You're going to, whatever corner of the planet that God has planted you, while you're there, you're going to see to it that what God wants to happen actually happens. Jesus didn't call his disciples together at the very end before he goes back to the Father. He never says, okay, listen, now listen to me now. I need you guys to be nice, okay? Peter, no more cussing. Thaddeus, quit drinking so much of that boxed wine. Right? No, no, he doesn't say any of that stuff. He doesn't gather his disciples and say, fortunately, I've taken your sins away. Now just hang on the best you can, and one day when you die, you'll go to heaven. What is it? When he gathers his disciples in the end, I mean, right before he ascends to heaven, when he gathers them all together, what does he say to them? Do you remember? It's in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is what he says. He says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which, think about that for just a moment. If there's any authority to be had in heaven and on earth, it belongs to me. Nobody has more authority than Jesus. And because of that, therefore I'm saying to you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of what? The Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and then surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now that's adventure. That's risk. We're going to go out to the entire world and proclaim the good news of Jesus, baptizing and teaching everything that he commanded. What Jesus is saying here, in a sense, is go and take over the world for the kingdom of God. Our purpose as disciples is not to hang on and hope we make it in the end, but rather to continue the very ministry of Jesus. That wherever we find ourselves, we're to declare the good news that people who've been shut out of relationship with God, who truly, in their mind, cannot imagine that a God could possibly love them, and the reason why is because of their background, their past, all their sins, all their mistakes, and they're just convinced God is not in love with them, crazy in love, but perpetually upset, angry, and disappointed. Our message as ambassadors of the kingdom is to say, oh, that's not true. Like, let me tell you what Jesus did on the cross for you and why whoever feels like they are outside can now get inside. Our, as ambassadors of Jesus, is to declare freedom to those who are in bondage of whatever sort, from sin to different addictions. Our job is to cast out demons, to literally push Satan back from any territory or stronghold that he presently inhabits, which, by the way, will tick him off, to bring healing to those who are sick, physically, emotionally, psychologically, to any place that has been broken by the fall and is now ugly, we make beautiful again. To serve those and to bring blessing to those who suffer and are disregarded. To highlight the image of God in other people that have been treated by everyone else as if they were beneath not only His image but even God's care. To reconcile broken relationships and to establish justice and peace and wholeness wherever we are to look at evil in the face and to overcome it with love, even to stare death in the face and scoff with a confident, where is your sting? Where is your victory? You do not have the last say here. We're talking about kingdoms colliding, and in it there's danger and conflict. And spiritual warfare is the language of the New Testament. And I think if the church could recapture, this is the point, I think we'd keep our kids. Our kids would give themselves to that. I think men would be inspired to that, just like they were in the days of Jesus. If you're looking for life purpose and adventure and risk for something that matters, that has meaning, choose this. Because, listen, I'm not giving my life to just be nice. I'm not that good at it anyhow. 
I'm not giving, like, in terms of even profession my life to convince people, just hang on, when you die, you get to go to heaven. No, no. He's called to something much bigger than that. Now, how do you continue then the ministry of Jesus? Like, and there's two possible ways for you in terms of how do we then, if we're to continue whatever Jesus did here on earth, how do you do that? One way is you could do so in your own strength and power. And this happens all the time. We, we see it all the time. Like every single person on the face of the earth was born and knit together in such a way that they have natural abilities and natural talents and giftedness. And we, we praise God for that. And you can try to advance the kingdom of God in your own strength and in your own power. And people try to do that all the time. And let me tell you, you will see a level of success in it. Like, if you just use your own natural God-given gifts and abilities, you will see some success when it comes to trying to advance the kingdom of God in your own strength and your own power. However, what I think will happen more often than not is you will find you're quickly overwhelmed and crushed by the mission. You will at times have your butt handed to you by the demonic realm. You'll grow quickly tired and weary and burned out and retreating to find a place to cover and to hide. And I think the church oftentimes lives here. Like if we were being honest, I think we'd say, oh yeah, at times we make decisions just kind of based on what we think we might be, uh, our estimations of capabilities of our own strength and power. Now that's one way. Or the way that's preferred is you could advance the kingdom of God and the mission of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, your natural talents and abilities really in the end are nothing compared to the power of the Holy Spirit. Your own strength to bring healing in the lives of other people and to the sick are nothing compared to the power of the Holy Spirit. Your own power, your own strength does not cause demons to be scared in the very least. But when the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit is in your arsenal, watch them flee. The life of the kingdom of God was never intended to be a life that we live out or accomplish in our own strength and power. It was intended to be lived by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God does not advance through normal activity. It advances through paranormal activity. And what I mean by that is something that is beyond what is normal. And practically speaking, that is why we talk about the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you want to go to the next level in regards to your faith, or if you want to go to a whole other level when it comes to your walk with Jesus, if you want to live out a powerful and effective purpose given to you by God, it will not happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, as a church, we won't go any further as a church without the Holy Spirit taking us to a whole new level. Like we talk about the 42,500 people who live in the zip codes of 46613, 46614, the 11,800 children who live in the south side of South Bend. But I'm telling you, all of that is completely dependent on us as a church being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has much bigger plans for your life than simply showing up two out of four Sundays a month, listening to a sermon, participating maybe in some worship, and then going out those doors hoping to be a nicer person. The kingdom of God is looking to advance at your school. And how that happens is by you walking in empowered by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is looking to advance at your workplace. And how that happens is you walking in empowered by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is looking to advance in your neighborhood or in your home or in other parts of this community or our country or our world. And you know how that's going to happen? A Spirit-empowered you. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit... What we're talking about is what is absolutely essential for us in regards to living out the agenda and calling that Jesus has given to us. In fact, I, wanna, I, want to, I want you to hear what Jesus himself says. And this is amazing if we really let this sink in. It's in John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, 
whoever believes in me, okay, now we already got, who, who's he talking to? Who's he talking about? Do we have any believers in Jesus here? Right? Yeah. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. Now just think about all the things that Jesus did. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now just let that sink in for just a moment. Man, if the church ever came to believe that Jesus was telling the truth here, to really believe this to be our expected reality, to do the works of Jesus that he's been doing and maybe even greater things than these, I'm telling you, that's amazing. But I want you to hear something that you might miss if you don't pay attention here. Jesus tells us how that's going to happen. Like, do you notice what Jesus says? You're going to do the same things I've been doing, in fact, greater things, because why? What's, what's going to happen to Jesus? He's going back to the Father. Oh, that makes sense. Wait, what? You're leaving us? Like, you're going to leave us and go back to the Father? How in the world is that going to help us? To lose your presence can only make things worse. How in the world can Jesus going back to the Father be the reason why then we'll be able to do the things that Jesus did and even greater things? So in order to understand that, you've got to picture it like God the Father has a plan of salvation that has been executed since the beginning of time. And if you look at God's salvation history, what you'll see is from the very beginning, he began to call a nation called Israel to himself, and he gave them the law. He's got an entire plan. And then when the time was at its fullness, he sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, to the earth in the incarnation. And for three years, Jesus fulfills his mission that God has given to him, the race that he's been given. So picture in your mind, Jesus is in a race, and he's got a baton in his hand, and it's a relay, and he's about to hand the baton off to the Holy Spirit, right? God the Father, Jesus is running, and he's got his toga, and he's running, and he's got the baton, and he's about to hand it over to the Holy Spirit in this race. The Spirit is about to take over from Jesus because Jesus is going back to the Father. Or maybe a different illustration, maybe some of you like wrestling, have you ever done tag team wrestling? We'll go to that illustration for a moment. Let's talk about tag team wrestling. So one guy's in the ring beating the other, and what does he do? He reaches back and he tags his partner who then jumps into the ring. Now see, Jesus has been in the ring now for three years doing what God has called him to do. In fact, it wasn't really clear and certain because when he died on the cross, it looked like, oh my goodness, we lost in the ring. But then out of nowhere, the resurrection showed up and, oh, Jesus is winning. He's in the ring and via his resurrection, he's winning. And now he's about to go back to the Father. But before he does, what is he going to do? He's going to reach back. He's going to tag the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is going to get into the ring. And now it's the Holy Spirit's job to continue this match until completion. While Jesus ascends to the right hand of God and even there still makes intercession for us, the Holy Spirit has taken over and he's in the ring. And as followers of Jesus, we have entered the age of the Spirit, or the time of the Spirit. Now, Jesus himself tried to forewarn us. Let me read you some passages where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go back to the Father, but don't freak out. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He'll say this in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I want to come back to that idea in just a moment here. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, if you go down just a couple more verses to verse 25, Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, or the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives, but do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Now, when you skip over a couple more chapters of chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus will say, but now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you is asking, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. And he told him that he's going to go back to his father. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, but more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you to all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So if you're looking at the bigger picture of God's plan, what you see is when Jesus shows up to the earth as Jesus of Nazareth, God takes on flesh. That's what we mean by the word incarnation. Incarnation means God taking on flesh. One of the natural consequences of Jesus having flesh and blood just like you is he can only be at one place at one time, right? Just like you. You can only be in one place at one time. Why? Because you are in the flesh. Because you have a body. That's only capable of being in this space at this time at this very moment. You can't be in two places at once, right? Even moms. I know you, you cannot be in two places, right? What that means is Jesus cannot be with Peter in Galilee and at the same time with Paul in Athens. But here's what's about to happen. Jesus in the flesh is about to hand the baton to the Holy Spirit who is not in the flesh. The Holy Spirit who is God is not incarnate. And because he's handing off the baton to the Holy Spirit who is God, that spirit that dwells within us can be with Peter in Galilee and Paul in Athens and Jim at the ballpark and Janae on Ewing. And you see what I'm saying? He could be with you when you're at Subway ordering the sandwich and they put too much mayonnaise on it. You still have the spirit wherever you're at. That's, that's how it works now. And that's why Jesus is trying to say, this is actually good news to you. When I go up to heaven, I will send the spirit and he will dwell in each one of you wherever you find yourselves, even in 2015. So how does the Holy Spirit dwell within us? Which was a great question. Like, is it like a burrito? Like, how does that, how does that work? Let me say this to you. It's still largely a mystery to me. In the way that you would assume when you're talking about God that there should be some level of mystery. And if we understood everything about God, would He by definition still be God? But the Father, by virtue of the Son's request, gives us the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is the Holy Spirit inhabits our spirits. He doesn't literally move into us trying to find a space between the pancreas and the spleen. Each of us, when we were created, were designed with body and feelings and mind and spirit and soul. I believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within our spirit. Oftentimes we'll use the word heart as a concept for this very thing. It's the spiritual realm of our makeup, and in it will reside the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think Paul kind of touches on a little bit when he says this to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for their own spirit within them? 
In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So the question is, well, then, when do you get the Spirit? Like, how, when does this happen? To which I'd say, well, you get the Spirit when God gives you the Spirit. Like, it's not a lever you pull or a prayer that you say or a particular act that takes place and God has to, like a cause and effect machine, hand you the Spirit. But what you typically see throughout the Scriptures is anytime somebody surrenders their life to Jesus and makes Him Lord and Savior, in response, God gives them the Spirit. Anytime that your life positively responds to the message of the kingdom of God, to the good news, to the gospel, what you see is the Spirit of God begins to dwell within them. So what happens is Peter goes to Cornelius' house in the book of Acts and he preaches the message about Jesus and it will say in the book of Acts that Cornelius and his entire household believed and received the Holy Spirit. Or uh, Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, when Ananias comes and preaches to him the message of Jesus, it, it, what happens? He receives the Holy Spirit. Or if you're looking for probably the most clear statement of cause and effect, it's probably in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. This is the day of Pentecost where Peter delivers the first gospel message. And then in response, the people go, well, what should we do? Peter says this in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And look what happens next. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are even in 2015. For all whom the Lord our God will call. So like if you're looking at, yeah, this is about repenting and turning our lives to Jesus, sometimes represented in baptism. Out of that comes the forgiveness of sins and also receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, if you've never been baptized, you should if you're a follower of Jesus. In fact, we've got one going, coming up on August 16th as our next baptism celebration we're having at Michiana Christian Service Camp. You should give it some thought. And in it, Peter says, that it links together some of our life given to Jesus and in return, the Holy Spirit. But back to this idea of how it is that we're going to carry out the mission of God with the Spirit in our lives today. This is the only way it makes sense of what Jesus... Remember what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 20 when he calls his disciples together and going to all the world preaching the, the God, right? And he says at the very end, he says, and surely I will be with you always. Remember what he says? To the very end of the age. Well, what does that mean? It kind of sounds like a threat. I don't think Jesus means it threatening. I think it's supposed to be comforting. Listen, I'm going to be with you until the end of of the age. What does that mean? What age? What age are we in? So we have a whole lot to talk about in terms of the Holy Spirit, but let me close with this. Let me talk to you about the age that we're in, what I think Jesus means by this. Now, first you have to understand the Bible's idea of time, because the Bible has a particular perspective of time, and it plays it out for us. So it starts out with creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse in chapter 2, and then you get to Genesis 3, and you got the fall, and there's a long period of time in which we live in the effect and the consequence of the fall. Things are broken. There's decay. There's sin. There's death. We live in that. Right? That's the age of law and sacrifice and death and sin and everyone who lives in that time, and you can read it reflective in the Old Testament, when you live, what you're looking forward to is a new age because this one is subpar. Like, just to be honest, this is not a great age. We're looking forward to a new age to come, and the trigger between this age and the new age will be God will finally break into the earth and make right everything that's wrong. 
Every sin that's messed everything up will go back to the way God intended for it to be. Everywhere that you see sickness and death, God will reverse it and bring back to to wholeness and life. To shalom is the Hebrew word. That's the great hope and that's the great expectation. And so we might live in this age, but God will send all the prophets to speak about an age to come that will be referred to as the day of the Lord. And so you begin to look forward to the great day of the Lord. Well, what happens to the great day of the Lord? A new age and a better age than the one that we're in now. And then when you get to the New Testament, what you discover is that at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the day of the Lord showed up. Like the King of God is here on the face of the earth. Like if you're looking at a map, I don't know how you get into maps at all, uh, sometimes at an amusement park or at the mall, you're looking at the map to figure out where to go. You know what the most important part of the map is? The little arrow that tells you you are here. Or the little red star that you'll see in this one. Like the, see, without that, you have no idea how to navigate the map. You don't know how to orient yourself to where you're at. You need to know, here's where I am, so you can make your way around the map. And the idea of time lets you know this is what age that we're in. And when you enter the New Testament, it, the death, burial, and resurrection has brought about a new age. God has broken into the earth. That's why in Jesus' ministry, people who are sick are made well. That's why demons are cast out. People are delivered from bondage and sin. That's why even people who are dead come back to life again. Like a new age is broken in. And yet what we can all testify to is, yeah, but we still kind of live like people still get sick and people still die. And we still see sin and we still see the effects of the fall. And so how do you explain that? In the New Testament view, it's sort of like the day of the Lord kind of smacked so hard that it, it overlapped itself. And what we're living in is this weird, awkward time that we call in between the times. Look at the two uh, two black lines. That's We live at a time when we still see the effects of the old age, and yet we're also simultaneously experiencing a new age of grace and mercy and peace and healing. We live in between the times, and the in between the times is now between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his second coming. God has broken into the earth, and yet we could still properly say that we're still awaiting the great and final day of the Lord when Jesus returns and puts an end once and for all to anything having to do with the old age. Now, I know this in concept can be a little difficult to grasp and understand. Let me try to, if I could, give it some light in regards to just history. In fact, even this past week, we celebrated uh, the 70-year anniversary of V-Day in World War II, right, V-Day. But if you go back to World War II, D-Day was one of the most significant. The Battle of Normandy was so significant and so monumentous in terms of the war, it decided the fate of the war. Like at D-Day, the Axis forces were so defeated and so humiliated and so put under that we knew at that moment the Allied forces were going to win the war. Like it just kind of changed the entire uh, uh, scope and direction of the war. However, D-Day was not V-Day. V-Day is when we actually got to see the total surrender of German and Japanese forces, and then we celebrated the complete end of World War II. But between D-Day and V-Day, many soldiers knew we're winning. Like, we know how this ends. We get, we're going to win. And yet there were still skirmishes, there were still battles, there was still injury, there was still conflict, and there was still death, even though they knew this is really, in the end, settled. And it is until V-Day in which they get to experience the full manifestation of the end of war. In the same way, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is for us like D-Day. Oh, it's already decided. We know how this turns out. Like Satan in the end loses. We win. We've experienced D-Day and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet we're still waiting for V-Day, which is for us the second coming of Jesus. And in between those times, we call it we're living in between the times. And that 
is the age of the Spirit. So when Jesus says, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age, what he's saying is, how I will be with you until my return is via the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the age of the Spirit. And so I don't know what it will be like for us in regards to relationship with the Spirit when Jesus returns, but it will be different because the age of the Spirit is what we're presently living in as we wait the return of Jesus. So I have so much more to talk about, but I'm hoping this morning you'll see that if you don't have the Spirit, it's absolutely required and necessary to fulfill the very mission that Jesus has given to us, which is not just to be nice or not just to hang on and make it to heaven. It's much bigger than that to empower us to carry out Jesus' assignment to change the world and to advance the kingdom of God. And the Spirit does that in a myriad of ways. I want to talk about that over the next three weeks. So how does the Spirit empower us to carry out Jesus' mission? We'll be discussing that. But for now, we never are hesitant about asking for more of the Holy Spirit. So if you would mind, let's all stand together. The band's going to come back up here. And they're going to sing a song. And sometimes songs are like prayers. And the song that they're about to sing is just... Really, it's a prayer, and I would encourage you to let this song and to let the lyrics of this song be your prayer as we dismiss in which we ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Whatever thing that God has for us, whatever He might offer us by way of giftedness of His Spirit, that's what we want so that we're lacking nothing as we go out and are empowered to advance the kingdom of God. Let's sing together.